This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, the premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America. Get a grip. Podcast number 98. Today, my guest is a repeat guest. Rich Poston's here with me, and I came back to Wichita for the weekend, and I didn't realize this the first time, uh, but, but Rich is from Wichita, so I had to have the opportunity to be actually sitting across from my first guest. That wasn't Aaron or Gina, um, so I'm uh, looking forward to this talk, and Rich, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Right. Good to be here. Well, last time we talked, um, for those of you that don't, that don't remember who Rich was, Rich is a uh, He's an analyst, you know, talks about the uh, about commodities, looks at the commodity marketplace and looks at futures, trends and those kind of things. And, and he also uh, talks a lot about the overall economy and looks at trends there as well. And, and Rich, before we started talking, said that you were you were building a, a website to kind of capture all that. Yes, uh, hopefully it'll be up in about a week. Uh, we thought we had it all ready to go and then changed mind, wanted an entirely different design. But it will be at ag-financial.com. Uh, inside of it, it's going to have what we call the Q report, and it is going to discuss uh, various model outlooks on the economy, stock market, commodities, uh, and then provide some commodity news and data and that kind of thing. So uh, I hope everyone will take a look at that, and it's going to be for free, and we'll just see where we go with it. Uh, this model analysis I've been doing for a couple of decades now, and, and to me it's uh, unique, original, more advanced than standard uh, fundamental analysis, but I do uh, perform in the, in the standard fundamental sector, meaning I'll show standard uh, S&D balance sheets on uh, all the grains and, and the standard outlook for that. But then I like to bring in this uh, this business cycle model concept that says uh, supply and demand fluctuates according to patterns and uh, certain lengths of time. And so uh, I think uh, viewers will find something new there and refreshing. Right on. Man, I'm looking forward to it. I, I kind of eat that stuff up, so I'll be excited to take a look at that. Last time we talked, um, the world wasn't, was probably a little bit of a different place. There wasn't as much stuff going on right now. You know, when you take a look at the commodity marketplace and you take a look at just the overall economy as a whole, how do you feel like the the trade issue is really affecting our marketplace today? It certainly affected uh, soybeans, and that has uh, somewhat impacted uh, wheat, corn. You can see the trickle down or crossways uh, characteristic. Um, as far as the overall economy, it hasn't affected the U.S. at all. Uh, we're seeing higher costs because uh, these trade tariffs uh, more on the metal side, say for the steel sector, have raised costs to consumers. Uh, but you're not seeing an impact uh, on our economy. The stock market is rather optimistic that uh, uh, these trade issues will be resolved, and they just don't seem to be that concerned. I, I think they've decided this import-export uh, complication just won't really bring down the U.S. economy. It's going to take something else to uh, 
to cause that kind of negativity. So the stock market is quite optimistic. Now, the stock market could be wrong, too. Investors may have it wrong of where we're going. Uh, you know, the longer this tariff lasts, if it uh, escalates and becomes a global issue, uh, then we have to be concerned of uh, a negative economic impact. The the negative impact right at the moment, economic-wise, is really in China. Um, it's, it's hurting uh, at least their stock market more than uh, than the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is basically pounding out record highs almost daily, and the China stock market's been going down all year long. So uh, now, a lot of people want to blame that entirely on the tariffs, but I um, uh, this cyclical research suggested there should have been some slowdowns in the global economy this year, and we're seeing it. So like the J.P. Morgan Global PMI Index that measures manufacturing, uh, that has been eroding all year long. So, and it doesn't look that healthy, but it's not necessarily crashing or anything like that. So, the uh, you could see there were other factors going to slow down uh, some of these countries, anyways. But the tariffs has added to concern, and the Chinese people are not happy with their government. They're also not happy with the U.S. Uh, because these tariffs are raising their costs, causing complications uh, for their business. And you can just see it's more of a negative factor for China right now. And this then encourages, I believe, the Trump administration to follow through with what they want to accomplish, uh, that they think they have the upper hand. And, and I would say the evidence supports them on that. So, uh, so now the question is, is there a deadline where it's just taking too long and, and is there a negative impact? And I'm not seeing anything telling us that. I, I think and we have to consider of um, – does it escalate? That's probably what's going to cause a problem. If it just kind of moves along this path right now, uh, and I think it could last well into next year, uh, maybe in November, uh, we will see uh, China and U.S. are supposed to meet. Maybe with something resolved, but uh, my guess is it's going to last well into, into next year. And if it doesn't go, doesn't escalate in the sense of Who's going to, you know, are we in a race of how high do we get tariffs and how many different tariffs do we need? Um, there's actually some economists here in just the last six months have changed their attitude. They're thinking, well, we've gone down this road of trying to rebalance with China. We're doing the tariffs. Then let's do it and let's do it right. And boy, some of them are saying you need 100 percent tariffs. Well, that's going to that's really going to hurt uh, the U.S. Uh, commodities here if if that were to occur. Uh, my gut feeling, China and U.S. really should back off on the ag side, concentrate more on the services and this intellectual property. And I, I do think the Trump administration is probably putting intellectual property now at the top of the list if it wasn't already. So hopefully they'll leave agriculture alone here, stay with the current tariffs, uh, and then and just work, hopefully resolve some of these other issues. Um, as of last night, some of the chatter I saw from economists is they're concerned China really isn't going to cooperate for some time on this intellectual property. That's going to be a real sticky situation uh, with them. So that that's a wild card we got to watch here that could just escalate everything else uh, around the world. Uh, I would like to point out that the uh, Chinese yuan, their currency is devalued 11% against the dollar, uh, which really, if you look at it on a chart, it's no different. It's, it's back to level was in June of 2017, so it's not necessarily doing anything historical. But the point is that gives China an edge. Um, so in other words, we raise our tariffs to them, uh, and, and even though they may raise their tariffs in retaliation, uh, our soybean price doesn't look quite as high as, as we might think it is to them. Their currencies has given them an edge now. 
and offset it. So I'm kind of thinking that provides a little support for us. And, um, you know, seasonally, we normally see uh, U.S. pick up after January 1 on soybean uh, sales to China. And I'm thinking the currency might actually help out with that uh, where we can at least see some stability. Now, we're going to lose something longer term. USDA has already lowered soybean uh, import expectations by 1%. Now, that's on a global basis. I I forget the number for just the U.S. But I think what we want to look at is um, there is risk of a little more than that if this uh, trade issue should ever escalate. I'm kind of dialing in 1.5% drop in imports. I, I think they have enough cushion there. And they can cut back on their own consumption. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking, well, soybeans have collapsed to near 8 bucks on the futures release. Cash is down in $7 area. Uh, has it possibly already dialed in uh, even a greater cut in consumption in China and, and, and imports? So there might be a bit of a, bit of a cushion here. Uh, so I'd like to think agriculture is kind of stabilized on this trade, and, and it's going to be more on uh, other manufacturing kind of things and services and the economy. But uh, we'll see. We're just going to have to take it one step at a time because uh, I looked at a timeline last night since March, and it's amazing. The, the government and the Trump administration have just been working daily. It's just something going on every every minute practically, and they changed their mind too. And uh, so we just have to take it one step at a time. Uh, I also believe that the tariff is a, is a smaller portion of the overall economy here, and the economic trend has been positive uh, since 2009 globally in U.S., even though the global is slipping now. Um, my gut feeling is that there's a good chance we could see some recovery globally in 2019. Is that a clue we resolve trade issues? Yes. Uh, do we need to resolve trade issues? I'm not so sure. I, I think the rest of the economy sectors could pull us out of that. So I'm trying to be a bit optimistic here uh, next year. And if we can just see some turnaround in some of these global stock markets, like Asia's not doing that well, Europe's not doing that well, South America's not doing it. Really, U.S. is the place to be in the stock market. It's definitely the strongest and best market out there. And if the U.S. stock market uh, over the next 60 days moves higher than the August high, my models are going to say that's a clue of be optimistic in 2019 for the U.S. economy at least. And I would like to think it's going to be a sign that uh, the global economy can recover too. So again, how does this translate to commodities? I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic we found some kind of floor price. But can we be outright bullish and expect major up moves? No. Uh, the world is going to be very careful how much it buys ahead, how aggressive does it buy. Uh, it's going to be hand-to-mouth, I think. Yeah. Uh, All right. So now when you take a look at the overall marketplace, and like you said, guys are going to be living kind of hand-to-mouth, kind of buying what they need when they need it, kind of filling those stocks and doing what you have. Um, when you look across the world, like wheat, for example, there is a – because of drought situations, whether it be in – Argentina or the Black Sea region or even in Australia for that point. For that matter, there's been a, uh, a significant amount, of, even in the U.S., there's been a significant amount of, of drought. Wheat is the one kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's a bit of a glimmer, I guess, in the commodity market because it's showing some some signs of stuff, especially with the stuff that's going on in, China, or, uh, in Russia where they're talking about export bans on wheat and those kind of things. World supply is still high. There's still a ton of supply out there. When you look at that particular segment, what do you feel is from some models and some trends that you look at, where do you see that headed and, and do you see that starting to turn around and maybe 
some of the world supply being ate up pretty quick. Yeah, I, I do believe um, that we probably put a, a, a long-term bottom in here a while ago, and the trend is, is ready to turn up. So far, we've seen choppy moves like we see over the past three years. You get a move during the year up, and it's, it's stronger than everyone anticipated because they keep looking at those overhanging supplies. And eventually it does settle back, and that encourages them to stay net bearish and, and focus on those uh, on that overhanging supply. But why did we see those uh, sometimes brief but very strong moments during the year over the past three years? And the answer is there's good demand there. And if the available supply suddenly backs off, and available supply is not discussed very much amongst analysts and economists, it's a component inside of your supply demand uh, market economics. And available supply, I think, is, is far more important than looking at the balance sheet. Uh, total supply, yeah, you don't want to ignore it, but it does not explain what's going on day-to-day or even month-to-month. It explains what's, what's going on for a year. And available supply explains those shorter two m- moments. So if you get the available supply where the seller's just simply saying, you know what, I don't need to sell anything this month, I don't need the cash flow, I'm holding out, and at the same time, you have that next increment or wave of demand that's got to get something procured, you're going to get a bigger up move than you would expect if you're looking at the S&D balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And this is where fundamental analysts miss this, and this is what I love with the type of research I do. It tries to fill in those gaps and holes uh, that fundamental analysis can't work very well with on a short-term basis. Uh, as far as, yes, we have the overhanging supplies, but a lot of people miss the point of you really should look at that on a per capita basis. How much wheat per person throughout the world do we have? It's high, but it's when you look at it charted out and then compare it to how most people are looking at the rest of the balance sheet, it's not as high as you might think. Yeah. So there's some interesting situations. And then in regards to the, the supply side for 2018, yes, we've seen some issues in, in Russia and uh, we've actually seen issues last year and this year. And some of this model research I do, even with cyclical patterns in yield, production, temperature, precipitation, it's been warning of last year, this year, and for next year that many regions around the world are vulnerable in corn, wheat, and soybeans. And the fascinating thing is these models correctly called the problem in Argentina where wheat was, I forget the amount of uh, decline in wheat, but corn and soybean production dropped 20 or 30%. And so it was spot on. Uh, and for, for that particular model. And that same model forecast a little bit of problem in southern Brazil this year, and there was somewhat issue there. In fact, some farmers were off 50% in their fields. Uh, then it showed correctly last year and this year problems, Spain, Portugal, Germany's back on the list, uh, and then definitely Russia. Uh, it's, uh, it was just as clear as could be to me that it was due. Now, this mo- these models won't pick the exact year for us. It always picks a range of two, three years, and uh, so all we knew it was in the range, and, and Russia was vulnerable, and we've seen it. Now, right today, Russia's uh, what kind of got the market excited here a few days ago is uh, the U.S. market. That is, is they felt like uh, well, Russia's going to put uh, export tax on and save, make sure it, it saves some wheat for itself, that it doesn't oversell it. And um, uh, however, Russia came out and kind of put some water on that thinking, uh, cooled it off a bit, uh, and that's understandable. And I don't think that's bearish, however. Uh, so it's interesting that you look at that high supply around the world, yet I, I, let's say it this way, I don't want to be a long-term bear on wheat prices. Uh, I, I, th- I think the bears are going to get clipped from time to time, and that doesn't mean wheat's going to take off to the moon or by no means. Right. But um, something, something's changing there 
you've got to be a little less bearish than what you see on the supply and demand balance sheet. Okay, so let's talk about South America for a little while. There's a lot of stuff going on down there, whether it's you know, some political unrest that's happening down there, whether it be in, in Venezuela or you know stuff that's happening in, in Brazil. Um, just a week ago, there was an article out about Argentina and, their, and they took a, a pretty big um, devaluing of their currency. Um, but it actually kind of gave them a benefit to their farmers as far as how they're selling stuff because based on the exchange rates and everything else, they actually got a boost. Where do you see... South America heading, and, and how do you feel with the turmoil that's down there right now that's going to affect the marketplace? So economic-wise, I don't say, think South America is going to do that well for a few more years. I think they're going to tread water. And uh, Brazil did have its worst recession in 30 years, and it pulled out of it. But it's it's acting choppy. It's, 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 it's got some difficulties. So concerned it'll, it'll slip back. It's interesting. You can't really tell from a poor recession versus, or I say a poor economy versus a good economy, will that encourage farmers to unload more? Um, So you really don't know whether, you know, which way this economic swing going to uh, influence farmers to move it. In Argentina, you've had this collapse in their currency. Interest rates from the central bank level have gone to 60%. They're going to put an export tax back on corn where they'd taken it off. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, a mess for their farmers. What I pointed out for the last three years, Argentina farmers, even though they are setting on large supplies and they can seem to store it very well, they don't mind keeping two or three years worth of crops in their times. Uh, my conclusion is they're so scared of the devaluation of their currency, they're not going to unload huge amounts, even if given a very high price. They're going to always reserve some. The reason is it's their hard currency. It's their asset. It's right. it's as good as gold to them. So I'm not concerned of uh, of like suddenly dumping from Argentina. Um, and if anything, with their drought, they're tighter than ever. And Europe imports 29% uh, of the global soy meal. And most of that comes from Argentina. That could be interesting for the U.S., uh, where we sell more beans to Europe, where we sell more meal uh, to Europe. So South America may not be able to really compete the way it had in the past, although you got to watch out for Brazil. Brazil, better economic situation than Argentina, but it has its issues there, and, uh, and it also has some limitations. How fast can it export? It's exporting a record pace right now. Uh, as far as I understand it, but how much more can they really do? And seasonally, they'll decline as the U.S. should then seasonally pick up the pace. A little bit of optimism there of doing some business with with Europe, but I don't want to uh, push that too hard. I realize the Trump administration come out with their deal saying Europe's going to buy a lot of soybeans immediately and this and that. Uh, well, they've already been picking up on that. It, that was a little bit of a uh, uh, over sale on their part <laughs> from coming from that. But I, I'm, I'm rather, again, I'm optimistic here seeing support on, on the U.S. market that the, some of this business can go from South America, European business can go from South America uh, to the U.S. Uh, my question now is, um, with all the turmoil in South America, uh, will the Brazilian farmer just continue to plant more? Because that's been the trend for a very long time. Uh, you can pretty much just gamble on, okay, just go ahead and dial in more acres. And they have the weather. I think they have the resources. Even if the economy's not well, the farmer could do it. I think they're kind of overdue for a dip in their in their yield and soybeans, frankly. 
so that should be watched. And if we see El Nino come in this fall, uh, that will increase risks to, to at least a portion of Brazil, uh, specifically for soybeans. So even if they expand there, I'm not so sure it has to be uh, any more bearish than what's being perceived now. There could be some weather issues there. And would like to think that, you know, the economics there should really tell the Brazilian farmer to kind of cool it a bit <laughs> and not expand on acreage for a little while. But will they? Right on. I've, I've listened to a number of different things and I've read a bunch of different stuff. And there is some hinting around of maybe another housing bubble thing kind of starting to rear its head a little bit um, in the U.S. Um, but with all the stuff going on in, in the world, the way, the way it is as far as overall economies go, um, how do you feel? Do you feel like that's something that could happen? Do you, do you, are you getting sense of that same kind of thing? Do you feel there is some cautionary tale to be told here when it kind of looking back to 2008? Um. There's no doubt in my mind that we're going to have a recession by no later than 2021. Uh, just very high probability, and the models, you can just go back and look over 100 years of U.S. data, and I just don't, I just can't see why I would go against that. Uh, the question is, when does it start? And when any luck at all, it's going to be two years yet that we'll still have some good economic growth over the next two years today. we got good jobs report again. Um, the housing is high. And I use these cyclical models on what's called the NARA index. It's by, by the National Association of Realtors. Uh, and it's, uh, do, it's related to what's called REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust. And you can actually buy these uh, even on Wall Street. You can buy them through a broker where you're investing in actual real estate. And I've done a fine job in the last 20 years following that index and using this cyclical concept to tell us when to sell. And it aligns quite nicely with the economy. And it's been issuing sell signals on real estate lately. Um, has it truly peaked? I kind of felt so about six months ago. It has recovered a little bit. Uh, so it, I get this news there could be a housing bubble because we've really run prices too high too fast. And uh, it is interfering with the supply situation. People are uh, they're buying less homes. They want a better, better price. So there's a correction coming. But is it a bubble like the back what we saw in 2008? I would say no. We haven't had anywhere near the free or low-cost financing, the free access to financing. People have not over-speculated or purchased a home that's way beyond their economic means. Uh, so I do not see a, a housing crisis uh, coming. Uh, the interesting thing is over in China, that could very well be some of the worries over their stock market is um, that they've kind of overdone it in real estate for several years now. And that, that's something that could actually blow up in, in China. Whether it will this time, I, I don't know as of today, but it is something to monitor. But here in the U.S., uh, I would say, no, that's not going to be a major issue for the U.S. economy. Uh, the thing for the U.S. economy is it's about 70 percent on the consumer side and 20 percent on business side. And so you just got to watch these consumer measurements and you got to realize at some point businesses decide, you know what, I can't expand anymore. It's, uh, it's, I want to take a break. And you lose that. And then pretty soon the consumer uh, decides, you know what, my credit card is up to where I just don't dare buy anymore. I, you know, I got to get back into my means. And, and suddenly you know, the economy slows down. Well, then pretty soon that scares business. And so it becomes a feedback loop. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill. It just gets bigger and bigger. And next thing you know, Nobody's doing any business, and you're in a recession. And the sad thing is bankers get caught up in that, too, and they turn very negative. 
uh, and then near the end of the recession, instead of loaning and helping out, they're very slow to loan. Uh, whereas uh, if they had to, could be that brave and have that courage, it would actually help us get out of these recessions much faster. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'll say uh, housing housing's high price is due due uh, for setback, but it's probably going to come back on the coming recession. In other words, it may start down no, now on its own because it's overvalued. And then eventually the recession will bring it down more. But is it going to be a, a significant factor causing recession? No. Yeah. So let's talk about, around the real estate topic, let's talk about farm ground. Um, farm ground has, you've seen a little bit of a dip, not, not like what you'd think it would be compared to what the commodity prices are. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, some of these long-term rents that, that were kind of inked, you know, whether guys are still making those payments or not. But um I still see farm ground being sold for eighteen to twenty thousand dollars in the corn belt. I mean, it's still happening. So, what's your feel for that segment of the real estate market, and where do you see that headed through the next couple of years? Yeah, for land that's going for ten to twenty thousand an acre, that I can't help but think that's high priced. I would love to say there's more upside because I am a super cycle bull uh, still in commodities, even though we've really ramped up the production. Uh, I still see a chance next decade for record high prices in commodities. I see another chance in the 2030s, but I don't see as many record years as I would have 10 years ago. Uh, so the super cycle of production has really come up at a fast pace uh, and kind of clipped it a little bit relative to uh, what the demand can, can actually do here. So it makes me a little less bullish, especially when it comes to that kind of price for land. So to me, the real value is in that two to $8,000 area that there's probably more upside for it. Uh, but again, but then you run into a situation of location. There may be a reason right. why it's there, and that won't change. Uh, so I'd be a little cautious of, of buying that high-priced uh, land here, even though, in general, the supercycle real estate prices, land prices, is supposedly up for the next 20 years. But I just question how much is there. You know, uh, It's been a nice run-up, and I just question how much more can, can we get. Uh, and you just have to realize it'd be one thing if, if the world was growing less, then you could see, you know, much better prices for the Corn Belt uh, next 20 years. And, but the world's trying to grow more yeah. and they're getting better at it all the time. So, uh, so again, I, the best I can tell you is I'm still a super cycle bull in ran, land prices, but I, I think the upside's limited if it's at 10000 or not. Okay, so when I take a look at the marketplace right now at, from, from the equipment side of the farm business, right, I'm looking out at, at 18 to be a fair, I'm not pretty bullish for the end of the year. I feel like we're going to have a, irregardless of, of pricing, I think we're going to sell equipment. And the reason for that is the producers have kind of hit a point of the, they have to make some hard decisions now about equipment. And that is, um, it might be paid for, but I might, I might have to spend, you know, X number of dollars to get reconditioned. And that might be 25 or 30% of the value, right? So some of them are looking at, I might spend this money, but it's a, I get a dim, diminishing rate of return on my equipment because I'm really getting nothing back out for those for those repairs. There's some tangible value to that, but for the most part, you fix what was broken. You you know you may have, you have a better machine now, um, but you're not going to get the thirty thousand dollars back out of your combine that you put into it. Some guys are looking at it of well, I got to spend the thirty thousand dollars on my combine, and um, I still have a thirty thousand dollar payment or forty thousand dollar payment or whatever. That's a $70,000 cash flow problem that I'm going to have. Can I afford to do that? Or is it better for me just to get a $50,000 payment on a new combine 
and, and just move up a little bit. I see the same thing going through 18 or through 19 as well, but there's going to be some of that in there. Um, what What is your feel for the overall strength of of the farm economy right now? I mean, I know the commodity prices are low, and every day you read about one other guy that's retiring uh, because of no one's coming back to the farm or he's just had enough or some guys aren't getting lines of credit and some big there's some big operators aren't, aren't getting lines of credit. What's your overall feel for the ag economy and, and where do you see that headed through um, 18 and 19? It's pulled back enough in the last five to seven years as far as like net income to the farm. Uh, I was just looking at a chart yesterday on it and uh, it's overdue for a bit of a rebound. So my thoughts are you're looking at very thin profit margins and maybe you're even in the red and you're wondering about the future and I'm thinking it's overdue for some kind of recovery, meaning it's, I think it's a probability of at least some improvement. So my thoughts are, at least especially on the machinery side, is you have to think in terms of what's the payback on improving your technology. Because if you look at the farming industry in the U.S., even though I realize there's a lot of land that could probably be pulled back into production, I feel like we're rather limited. So the point is you've got to look at technology improve not only your yields, but how much land can you handle, how efficiently do you handle it, how timely do you get the crop harvested. So the point is you really don't want to back off in your technology. And that's where, obviously, the newest machinery comes in uh, to help with that greater efficiency. So I realize repairs can just keep you going, but we all know that, boy, eventually repairs you know, get to be a drag, too. Right. Yep. So I, I guess I'm in the camp of, yeah, trying to stay current. On, on equipment on the farm, and but you just got to take a hard look at what is the payoff. And it just seems like to me technology is still our, our answer here to get better and better because uh, it's just too difficult to go out there and get cheap land and, uh, and, and then just use old machinery and saying that's how I'm going to produce more. Right. Yep. I'm, I'm right there with you. The idea of um, I kind of look at it at, on the equipment side of the business that we've we've have a paradigm shift that we've shifted from more of a, we're an iron selling iron with technology on it to we're selling technology on iron. You know what I mean? So the mm-hmm. technology side of the business has taken off to be such a, a mainstay. Mm-hmm. Um, we joke all the time on here that the red buzzer on the tractor saying, Hey, shut it down because you're going to have a massive failure to push that as much as they feel comfortable pushing that, but let their AB line go down on their guidance system and they'll shut the whole tractor down so that someone comes out and helps them get that fixed. You know what I mean? So, (laughs) you know, so it's the technology side has done it. And, you know, the argument of, you know, how are we increasing yield? Is it, is it obviously, is it genetics in the hybrids that we're producing now in in seed? Or is it a, a combination of planter technology and guidance systems and, and the hybrids all put together? That, that are, that's giving us this year over year over year increase in, in yields because what's it, the 2050, we're supposed to have 9 billion people or whatever. We're trying to figure out how we're going to produce more land on top of uh, or more crops on the same acres of land that we have. And, you know, that's 
that's getting to be an issue. So talk about that a little bit when you start looking at your future outlook. Yeah, I, over the next 20 years, is, uh, and I get the whole idea out to 2050 even, but at least for the next 20 years, uh, global demand is just going to continue to increase. And granted, it may not seem that bullish right now, but it's a ratchet process. You, you boost the demand, the demand then buys the production. So you boost the production, but now your price suffers. But pretty soon the next increment of demand just comes in there. And it just can't, and it's a cycle. That's what a cycle does. It ratches up and down, up and down. And uh, the super cycles are basically up from uh, the 2000s into the 2030s, to even early 2040s for, for not only prices, but you can just see demand is going up, production's going up, global population's going up, which is the bigger biggest driver. But you're also seeing the world move more towards capitalism. You're seeing the world, even the communists are somewhat of a capitalist now, and they recognize you've got to incentivize people and let them make a profit on their own and uh, can't tell them what to do for everything within the economy or within their business. So it's interesting. The world is, is following this super cycle. It's an evolutionary process. It doesn't follow a straight line. And, and yeah, sometimes it goes the other way and worries you that, well, it's all over. It's not working. And the next thing you know, it just snaps right back again. So there's no doubt in my mind, demand's going higher over the next 20 years and will be larger and at times move faster than the production. Right today, production's keeping up. It's bounced things out. But there's going to be that next increment of where demand will, will run higher. So uh, I'm optimistic for prices. It's just we have to realize that uh, if you want really fast up moves in prices, look back the last 200 years in this country, it's always been wetter. Okay, Rarely, the S in the 2000, we had a very rare occurrence of all this China speculation. People just didn't understand what that meant other than they felt like it's huge demand. So buy, buy, buy. And they, they put prices up without even a crap problem and 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 uh, put things up where normal economics would have said you shouldn't have done that. But they looked at it correctly, though. They were looking at, we've got a lot more mouths to, to feed here, and so this, go get them, right? Now it's come backed off a bit, and it's a better balance of, of supply and demand. And so if you really want those fast-moving prices, it has to be a weather problem. That's what the history of this country, if not the world, has is, is always been. And those weather problems are still going to come. The way I look at it, you've got two big bull markets every decade, uh, from weather events. So if you if you then, however, smooth that out, uh, don't get too caught up in those big bull markets, where are you at? And it just looks like the overall trend is going to be more demands running ahead of in the next 20 years uh, than the supply. So yeah, then boy, when you're looking at 350 corn, which these days looks like $2 corn when it was 20 years ago, and you're feeling depressed, you know, there's nothing's really changed on the super economics here. Uh, to say, just give up. You know, there's, there's going to be some nice bull markets. There's going to be some increases. And then every once in a while, you're going to get those weather issues that hopefully it doesn't impact your farm and the other guy's farm. And, and, and then yeah. you, you really rake it in, right? right. And uh, those are going to still occur, too. Like, I'm already forecasting a significant problem in 2022 to 2024. Uh, some people are doing the same thing, but a little later than I. Uh, weather's still going to be there. Uh, all this technology... Yes, it's ramping up the increase in yield faster than uh, normal, but it's not necessarily protecting us from uh, weather issues. It really hasn't changed that story too much. So they'll come in there and, and hit things, and that's what's going to create those big explosive markets, and, and then farmers should take advantage of that because we will go right back to, to high production. But if they can take advantage of that so their price, their actual net price is dropping slower than the actual market price, 
I think they're going to do quite well, frankly. Uh, are they going to get rich at it? I don't know because the problem is the rest of the world is also trying to copy us on all this. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've, I've said that that that's the uh, in order to uh, grow their market share, seed companies taught the world how to farm outside the U.S. You know, so their uh, just infrastructure is just one thing that that I will say the rest of the world has kind of somewhat of a disadvantage to. I mean, obviously Europe has some good infrastructure built in there, but you know, South America and, and, and Africa and, and places like that where they have an incredible amount of ground that is super fertile, that it requires very little um, uh, chemicals and those kind of things to really go out and, and make stuff happen where their cost of production is so low and labor is low and everything else. Um, but that being said, the U.S. has some issues when you start looking at the age of our infrastructure, whether it's the lock system in the Mississippi or the bridges and stuff that we have and <clears> – <throat> the speed of our trains and stuff that we can go back and forth with, um, the rest of the world's starting to catch up. And that we will be at a, at a disadvantage. Um, you know, if you look at across, as the world catches up, we will be at a disadvantage um, overall. So speak to that a little bit. Kind of what's your feel there? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, the You go over and look at what's going on in Ukraine, the Black Sea area. They have really ramped up just bigger and bigger ports. Um, you know, China's been at it aggressively for a long time, and uh, and South America's trying to do better. I mean, Brazil's trying to complete that last little segment of a highway where they can uh, move uh, grain all the way to the other side of the country and, and gain better access to the Amazon River uh, for exports, and uh, we got to be cautious of that. We really do need to figure out how can we... Uh, upgrade our infrastructure here. Uh, I, you know, it appears that we're doing well enough, and I think that gives us, puts us into a, a kind of a lull there where, yeah, we should fix that, but maybe tomorrow, you know. And But what if the world really, uh, especially, the, you know, and what we forget is we keep concentrating on U.S. crop problems, but, you know, I can name eight countries where there's been crop problems last year and this year, and it fit well with my models. I, I called like six out of eight of those countries and, you know, boy, if suddenly the world had a setback in grain, boy, our, we're going to be the store to go to. And what if the infrastructure, however, held us back on moving that grain fast enough so that you move into the next year and suddenly the world's right back at production? You know, you've missed, you've missed a golden opportunity there. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced we have to go out and you know, spend outrageous sums to, to do infrastructure, but I think... Uh, I think business and government can work together and, and, and create a better infrastructure there. And, and we really should look at it because uh, we produce, uh, we still produce a lot of crops more than everyone else in better quality and uh, just be ashamed to miss out of those one or two years out of every five to ten years when, boy, we could really clean up and, uh, and really help ourselves. And it was just because we couldn't move things fast enough. Because another way to look at this, you've got to remember a lot of businesses around the world also look at Ford procurement. And so they can do the math, and they'll say, well, maybe the U.S. won't, won't deliver on those goods, so we buy up to this amount, but by then maybe we should be holding out to buy from someone else. Where if they can say, boy, the U.S. can ship it just as fast as we want and all we want, man, that's a, that's a positive. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal when we can do that because we have the highest quality and usually the largest stockpile uh, of stuff to sell the world. So it would be, it, like you said, it's not something that we need to go out and fix like immediately today, but we need to start addressing it. And there needs to be some 
some plans put together to kind of film. It would be one thing if if some of the major exporters around the world were were on our same level or or even dragging behind us, but you can just see they're building bigger and better ports. Yep. And that's going to be a, that's something we're going to have to address. Absolutely. So, well, Rich, I think I've covered everything on my list. Is there anything on on your list you want to throw back out there before we shut it down? Uh, no, I'm just trying to be an optimist here for prices, and uh, I have a model that's saying give it one more year for a crop problem in the U.S., and then probably we'll have two or three good years, and then eventually a more serious crop problem in 22 to 20, uh, 24. Um, and I'm trying to be an optimist. Economy is going to hang in here a couple more years, and frankly, I don't think a recession is going to hurt uh, the farm side of agriculture, in fact, of all of uh, even the non-farm side of agriculture, could uh, ride through this fairly quickly. To me, it's the high-priced commodities like uh, oil at seventy to ninety dollars that can drop to fifty to thirty-five during a recession. But uh, I don't really see a reason for corn to go under three bucks during a recession. I mean, we just haven't rallied enough. Right. Uh, yeah, there's some overhanging supply there still, but that's you know you're seeing evidence at least on the corn side of tightening that supply up too. And yeah, there's a lot of soybeans, but boy, soybean is food. It's it's more valuable to the world than than say corn even. So I'm trying to be an optimist here and want to give weather a chance for uh, for an up move. I, I think the real negativity out of any kind of recession is going to be more in the service sector, energy sector, and so hopefully we got a floor under us. And hopefully all that's going to happen is we're just waiting for that next uh, leg higher, which I think next decade. Um, the commodity economy, in other words, that sector of the total economy is going to do better than this decade. So I've got to be an optimist. There you go. You always got to be an optimist. Well, if guys wanted to reach out to you and touch base to you and, and whatever, um, how would they do that? Email me directly at rich at ag-financial.com. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at uh, rich uh, underscore possin. And, uh, and like I say, hopefully very soon I'm going to have a, a new website out here at ag-financial.com, and it's probably going to have a subtitle of Q Report, which the Q just stands for types of uh, analysis I'm doing. And, uh, but, yeah, shoot me, shoot me an email. Uh, I'd love to talk about the markets and, and economy and the weather. Well, Rich, thanks for being on the show again, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you. All right. Take care of yourself, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Rich for being a guest in this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. And you can also send me an, an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron Podcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit the Moving Iron LLC website at Moving Iron LLC.com. Here you can find information for the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of the Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard work.